everyone, and welcome to another episode of Bible Ask Live, where we answer your Bible questions live here on our weekly show. My name's Tina with my friends, Jane Wendy. Hi, guys. How you doing? Hello. Hello. We're good. How are you? I am blessed and happy to be with you all. And I'm so excited because we have a lot of really great questions that came in. And I'm so excited for all of you, our viewers out there who are watching with us. We want to thank you for joining us and welcome you to our weekly show. Again, this is live. So if you have any thoughts or questions, you want to say a shout out, say where you're from, be sure whatever social media platform you're on uh, to put in the comments below. And we always love interacting with our audience, whatever, um, again, whatever social media you're at. So again, just put your name um, or where you're from, any questions, any comments, ideas, thoughts uh, down below in the comment section. And we would love to hear from you. And I see somebody's already said hello. <laughs> So hello, Olivia. Nice to see you. Hello. Good to have you with us. Yes. So uh, we just want to welcome again, everybody, and hope you enjoy our show tonight as we answer some really great Bible questions that have been coming in to our website. If you would like your, and just so you know, if you'd like to formally submit one of your questions, be sure to go to our website, bibleask.org forward slash live, and you're always welcome at any time to submit your question, and we'll get to it on our weekly show as soon as we can. So without further ado, uh, Jay or Wendy, you want to start us off with a word of prayer? Oh, oh, I'll start off um, Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much for the Sabbath day, for this time you give us each week to rest and to know you more, to get to know you more, and to spend time with you, Lord. And we just ask that you be with us this evening as we answer these questions uh, with Jay and Tina as well, that it would be your words that come through them and that each person will be able to get to know your love better through this study tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you so much for that. So, Wendy, what is our first question? Let's go ahead and get that question up. So, Anonymous is asking, what does Anathema Maranatha mean in 1 Corinthians 16.22? Was Paul cursing? So anonymous, this is a very interesting question. Um, I learned some things with this one for sure. So the answer first is no, Paul wasn't cursing. And um, but I can understand where, where you're getting that from. So let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 16, starting at verse 22. And it reads, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. So was Paul cursing here? No, uh, we need to go back to the Greek. Remember, this is the New Testament. It is written in Greek, not English. And so it's not like he's saying, let there be cursing. He said at the end, anathema maranatha. Those are the last words. So where it says, oh, let him be a curse, that's anathema. And then, oh, Lord, come, that's maranatha. And interestingly, this is the only time in, in the entire Bible that we see Maranatha used. And that was a new one to me. I didn't realize that because it's a, many of us hear the word quite often and, and see it as a very important concept. And to the early Christian church, that was an important word. So here Paul says, you know, let it be accursed, anathema, and then, uh, oh Lord, come, Maranatha. What does a curse mean? What does anathema mean? So it means a thing devoted to God without hope of being redeemed. And if an animal to be slain, um, you know, so you almost think of like that sacrifice, that that lamb that's going to be slaughtered for the temple practices. That was an accursed creature. And what was that creature representing? It was that representing the fate of the wicked. So a person who's doomed to destruction, 
that we read about in Revelation, the, the fate of the wicked. And Jesus stepped in for us, in fact, to to be that lamb, to be that, you know, it, you know, he became a curse that we do not have to suffer the curse of death. Uh, and all these concepts of, of anathema and a curse is very much associated with the concept of excommunication. So like the Catholic Church has this excommunication process and they would go through and use the words anathema and maranatha to, for that uh, ceremony, I should say, as I understand. Um, now, multiple times the word accursed is used in the Bible. For example, Romans 9, 3. Paul uses uses it, he says, for I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. And this should sound very familiar. This is very familiar language. It's similar to what Moses said, where he said, Lord, don't destroy those people. If it was possible, please like blot me out from your book, but don't destroy these people. Uh, that same exact concept here. And then we have... 1 Corinthians 2, 3, or 12, 3, Paul's talking about Jesus. He says, therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Um, and this was interesting, I guess you could say, but didn't, Jay, didn't you just say that Jesus became a curse for us? Yes, but I think here Paul is showing a different usage of it, where he's talking about more like, yeah, being, you know, the the concept of being cut off from God permanently, you who actually be destroyed with the wicked. Um, you know, Jesus isn't a heretic. He's not one who's, you know, contrary to the faith. He is the one who defines it. He's the author of our faith. And then we come to Galatians 1.8, and it says, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. So even angels could you know, be a curse, be doomed to destruction, which is in fact what we do see. And we, I think we might talk about it a bit more today. So Maranatha is an interesting word. And I guess it wasn't so much asked, but it can mean either Lord come or it can mean the Lord has come, depending on how we translate it. And it's actually an Aramaic word that's being transliterated into the Greek. Um, but it's very similar to what we see in Revelation 20 verse, sorry, Revelation 22, verse 20, where John says, sure, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Same sort of, sort of concept. Come Lord Jesus. So Paul is saying, you know, don't want to be accursed. If anybody is um, not loving Jesus, um, you know, they're going to be accursed. It, they're going to be cut off from God. They're going to be doomed to destruction. And oh, Lord, <laughs> come, you know, please, Lord. And, and, and signifying, some people see it as signifying, you know, that when Jesus comes, there is going to be that judgment associated with it. And at some point, um, not loving God will lead to the separation from God, which ultimately leads to uh, the death and destruction that they face. So that's what Paul's talking about in a nutshell. Hope that's helpful. Thank you for asking. Anything you want to add? No, I, I think you covered it pretty well. Um, I'm sorry, I had to step out at the beginning of your your um, of the answer. I'm guessing that you defined it on Blue Letter Bible, though. <laughs> That's what I use all the time. Yep. Okay. I was like, I'm guessing. Well, but I did look at a, actually a lot of sources oh, I'm sure. um, this time around, but especially 
Um, when it comes to anathema, most people are on the same page what that means, but Maranatha actually is the much more debatable word, mm. much more debatable meaning. Yeah, I always understood it to be like, come Lord Jesus, like, you know, like you're saying in Revelation 22 um, as well. It's, so. it's a matter of, it's a matter of grammar. So mm -hmm. if it's Maranatha, then it means the Lord come. Lord, mm. come, <laughs> please, Jesus, come. Um, but if it's Maranatha, or sorry, Maranatha, it means our Lord has come. And people aren't sure exactly which, Interesting. yeah, may have been used in this context here. But yeah, it, yeah. Seems, it seems like this is getting set aside, like somebody's being set aside as a curse for when Christ come, which is, you know, the destruction of the wicked. That's but, what makes the most sense. Yeah, I, I would agree. Anyways, I love that stuff. I love how the Bible has so many deep things and interesting things. You never get bored. Yeah, and I just had no idea that Maranatha was only used one time in the whole Bible. Yeah, it is surprising with how much it is repeated and used. Yeah, but places. apparently it was a big deal to the early Christian church. So oh, yeah. there was a lot more context to it that we today are just trying to figure out and better understand, mm -hmm. but... Yeah, I can, we can't say 100% for sure we know exactly what Paul meant right there. Yeah, exactly. That's interesting because I have another question coming up pretty soon that has kind of a similar theme, but uh, we can get to that. All right, shall we get our next question up? I know. Hello to Sean M. Yes. Oh, yes. All right. Hi, Sean. So, <laughs> hey, Sean. All right. So Kevin is asking, does Hebrews 10.19 teach that Jesus already entered into the most holy place before 1844, considering that Paul is telling the people of his time that we have the confidence to enter into it? That's a really great question, Kevin. And I love how you're studying your Bible so deeply to even ask that question in the first place. It's awesome. Um, but the answer to that is no, it's not that Jesus went into the that we have the confidence to enter into the holiest in heaven or that Jesus went into the holiest in heaven. It's that um, we have the confidence to enter into the holiest of the earthly sanctuaries. Talking about the worldly sanctuary, not the heavenly. And so that's where that's the difference. And it's pretty clear that Paul is, or is writing this in the book of Hebrews chapter 10. When you look at the context of, of that verse. So let's actually look at the verse first in Hebrews chapter 10, um, verse 12. And I could totally see where you would think this because I would have jumped to this at first. And I think actually a long time ago when I was saying this, I was like, wait, what are you saying? And I was like, oh, okay, wait, no, 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 I got it. Um, so in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, Paul says, but this man, Jesus, after he had ordered one sacrifice for sins forever, obviously this is Jesus, sat down in the right hand of God. Oh, excuse me. And did I just miss the verse? I'm sorry. Hebrews 10. Ah. 1019, excuse me, not 12, 1019, my apologies. But again, this is talking about Jesus. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. So <clears throat> we indeed do have access to the holiest place. Anybody of us now can go into the holiest place on the earthly sanctuary because we have the blood of Jesus for one. And because obviously... Um, the sanctity of the sanctuary has now transferred from the earthly sanctuary to the holy, you know, or to the, to the heavenly. And we see that pretty clear. Um, like I said, in Hebrews chapter 10, the first four verses are pretty clear showing us 
that this, what he's talking about here is the earthly sanctuary. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse one, it says, for the law, having a shadow of good things to come and that the very image of things can never with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year continually make the comers there into perfect. So he's saying all these sacrifices that we did in the earthly sanctuary, all these rams, bulls, you know, sheep, they can't make anybody perfect. They can't really cleanse anybody from their sin. It says, for then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshipers once purged should have no more conscious of sins. Because, you know, if, if your one sheep was good enough, like why would you keep having to sacrifice more and more sheep? You know, we had to keep doing that in the earthly sanctuary back in the time of the Old Testament. It says, but in those sacrifices, there is remembrance again made of sins every year. So on the day of, you know, of Yom Kippur, um, the day of atonement, you know, all those sins were having to be washed away, but then they would come back again every year by year. Um, even though that was the cleansing of the sanctuary of the earthly sanctuary was on the last day of the Jewish year, Yom Kippur. And says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Exactly, talking about the earthly sanctuary. But when you get down to verse 19, talking about Jesus, it says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, we can now enter into the holy place here on earth because of the blood of Jesus. It's not um something cut off to to the people. It's it's no longer um, that of importance, but rather what is of importance is of the heavenly sanctuary. And it's pretty clear that Paul is actually speaking to this as well. And when you go back a chapter to give a little bit more context, in Hebrews chapter 9, he says some very interesting things. Um, he talks about the worldly sanctuary. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. So again, he's talking about the worldly sanctuary. Um, it says, for there was a tab tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick, the table, showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. So he's talking about this earthly sanctuary again. Um, and so he's saying, you know, we now, like back before, it was so holy, you like a regular person couldn't even go in the holy place. And only one person ever on one day of the year, the high priest could only go into the holiest of all, the Holy of Holies on the last day of the Jewish year, Yom Kippur, you know, the, the day of atonement. And now he's saying, you know, now this, this earthly sanctuary is not what we need to be concerned about because we've, you know, it's lost its it's meaning so much because it's been fulfilled in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so now if you went into the holiest of all, you could come boldly in there and not be afraid that you were going to be annihilated because what would happen is if somebody earthly went into the holiest of all, they would, they would die. And so you don't have to fear that anymore. You could go into the holiest place in the earthly sanctuary and still be all right. However, um, is there a heavenly sanctuary that you're talking about? Yes, that is definitely the case. In one chapter back again, as I'm sure you already know, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, he's talking about, you know, now the things which are spoken of, this is the sum. We have a, such a high priest, Jesus, who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. So not this earthly sanctuary that he talks about later, but rather there's a heavenly sanctuary. And all these things in this earthly sanctuary pointed upwards to um, Jesus's future fulfillment, which he's doing now in the heavenly sanctuary. And yes, you are spot on that in 1844, the end of the 2300 day prophecy of Daniel chapter eight, verse 14, it was fulfilled 
1844, when Jesus went from the holy to the most holy. And we even see in Hebrews chapter 9, excuse me, um, that uh, he, or Jesus only went into the holy place. And um, it's pretty cool because if you go down, like I was kind of showing you in Hebrews 9, talking about the early, um, the earthly sanctuary, and it says, um, you know, Jesus being, you know, fulfilling all these things here, it says in verse 11, but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. So the heavenly sanctuary, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, not this physical building here that we're seeing, you know, this is um, the, the temple was still intact. This is before 70 AD when it was destroyed. And it says, Neither in verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So Jesus only went into the holy place, it, talking about the heavenly sanctuary, not the holiest of all yet. Um, we only have access to the holiest of all an earthly sanctuary um, through the blood of Christ, because Jesus has fulfilled everything here. And now we just need to look upward to a heavenly sanctuary because that's where we're um, that's the fulfillment that needs to happen at the end of prophecy so we can go home. So I hope that answers your question and I pray you continue to study your Bible and, um, and have really great questions like that for us. Um, Jay or Wendy, any other thoughts on that? Nope, that was good. Praise the Lord. All right, shall we get our next question? Yeah, let's do it. So Emmy is asking, what if your loved one is too young to understand Christ, like two or three? Will they be saved? Hey, Amy, this is an excellent question. So there's multiple ways that we can approach it. But first, let's look at Exodus 32, 33. And this is something we were just talking about, in fact, about how Moses was talking about don't blot me out of or um, Lord, be willing to blot me out of your book of life um, if it would mean sparing the people of Israel. And God wrote back or said back to Moses in Exodus 32, 33, he said, whoever has sinned against me. So whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. So the important concept here is God, God doesn't punish us for the sins of our parents. I mean, there's a Bible verse, in fact, directly against that, uh, or, or saying that. And and it's repeated throughout, throughout. It's when we sin, it's our sins. It's not our sinful sinfulness. It's our sins that we are judged and affect us. And ultimately, sin is the opposite of love. Sin is not embracing love, refusing to have a relationship with God. So yeah, a child, they might not know Jesus yet. They're just getting to know him, just getting to understand God. God's just working on their heart, be, being their conscience, and they're either listening and obeying or they are you know, rebelling and who knows. But, but Jesus understands, God knows kids are still learning and gives them different slack. And we'll, and we'll look at some uh, other verses confirming that. If we go to 1 Kings 4, 12 to 13, this is an interesting verse where it does show that God still is looking down into the hearts of children and, and seeing good in them. This is a very interesting verse. 1 Kings 14, verse 12, it says, Arise, therefore, go to your own house when your feet enter the city. So this is a prophet speaking to a parent. 
When your feet enter the city, the child shall die, and all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he is the only one of Jeroboam, the king, king's son, who shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something good towards the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. And you're thinking, wait, isn't that bad? God said this kid's going to die. But the idea is God was going to let this child die and he would be given a normal good burial. And then the rest of the royal family was going to be brutally slaughtered. So God says, because I actually love this kid and this kid seems to, I mean, the wording here is interesting. I found good toward the Lord God. Um, so God knew the heart of this child. There seemed to be the beginning of a relationship there and God had, God Spare that child and sort of indicates we might see that child in heaven someday. But then Hebrews 11, 24 seems to suggest, you know, there, there are different levels of, of culpability, of, of guilt. And the older you get, the more is expected of you. And this is, you know, today, you know, the age 18 is a big age, right? When now you could do a lot more. And then 21, now you could do even more. And they sort of had similar concepts like that even back in ancient days. For example, Hebrews 11, 24, it says, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, when Moses became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So even so there, like Moses at some point couldn't decide whether or not he wanted to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And then he reached an age where he's an adult and he could decide whether or not to accept that. We see in Exodus, this was the, I mean, one of the most tragic sins ever committed was by the Israelite people sort of rejecting God and having a lack of faith when they were right there at the promised land, ready to go in. And because of their unfaith, God condemned an entire generation. So how did God draw the lines between who could go in and who didn't? We see this in Exodus 30, 14. It says, all who cross over those 20 years old or more are to give an offering to the Lord. Oh, sorry, the different verse. But there it's still God's signifying adults are at 20 years or older. And then after this sin, uh, Numbers 8, 18, it says, and they called the whole community together on the first day of the second month. The people registered their ancestry by the clans and families. The men 20 years old or more were listed by name. Uh, Numbers 14, 29 says, in the wilderness, your bodies will fall. Okay, this is verse I was looking for. In the wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. So they had done a census. They only counted people over 20. Those were the adults. And people 19 below, you know, your kids. Your, your kids, you're not yet counted and so it was the counted adults were the ones that were condemned because of the grumbling and didn't enter the promised land. Now, God, I don't think really draws arbitrary lines all the time. Uh, you know, it's not like, okay, now you're 20. Now you're really uh, going to be held accountable for your sins. I believe even younger than that, we can be. But, but God has multiple tiers, different approaches for judging our guilt. We see in Romans 12, sorry, 2.12, Romans 2.12, it says, For as many who have sinned without law will perish without law, and as many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. So people who never knew Jesus, never have heard his commandments, 
they're not going to be judged if they kept the Ten Commandments that they never heard. Or they're not going to be held to know Jesus that they never heard about. God is quite fair on this. And Acts 17.30 says, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. So if someone, like on an individual basis, again, if someone was totally ignorant of God, God's not going to hold them to account of that ignorance. If it's just because like they're young, it wasn't their fault. They're still growing and their brain's still adapting. Like <laughs> God's not going to hold some somebody to something they can't help. And uh, Luke 12, 48, so Jesus says, But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of strife, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. And so people who know more, who have experienced more, let's say someone grows, grows up in a Christian home, might be held to a higher standard than someone who didn't, who didn't know what God was saying. And then we go to Mark 9, 35 to 37. We're getting a picture of how Jesus thinks of kids, his, his disposition towards them. He says, and he sat down, called the 12 and said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be the last of all the servants um, and, and be the servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one of these little, little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives, receives not me, but him who sent me. So Jesus, you know, saying, be like kids, be like them. And, and there's that aspect of kids are vulnerable. They aren't in control. They were, especially back then, really looked down upon in society. So there's those elements there too. So God was very sympathetic for their situation. But there's another aspect of kids that Jesus really liked. And this is Mark 10, 13 to 15. Jesus said, Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But Jesus saw it. He was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Surely I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And we talk about the faith of a child. And what is that faith like? If you say something, the kid believes it. You know, mom, mom, dad, you know, why are the trees this way? Why are flowers this color? Why this, why that? And then whatever answer the parent gives, you know, the child's just takes it in. It's like, ah, oh, that's the fact. That's the way it is. And this really was the way God wanted us to be. In a sin-free world, we're supposed to be able to just take people at the word and, and take Jesus and God at his word. And it's only through, through life as we know it right now that over the years we grow criticism and critical thinking and i'm not saying these are bad things we there are natural responses that we need in this world where there's lies and deception all around us and then when we get the bible we take that critical lens and then apply it to that and then to god's promises and then really doubting god and distrusting and and god's saying no we need to be like the children and if a child has been lied to their entire life, if a child is, you know, being told a totally different story, being told wrong things by the parents and then believing it like a child should, God is 
going to be understanding and I believe cut them some slack. So we know God is going to be fair. He's the fairest judge. He wants everybody to be saved. He's not the one trying to keep us out. Satan is, is the accuser. Satan's the one that wants us to, to perish with him. And God is the advocate and will make sure that those who will be a great fit in heaven will be there with him. So hope that is helpful and thank you for asking. And Tina, anything you would want to add? Yeah, just really quick. I, I had the verse up and I don't, I don't have it up, but it's basically, you know, I totally, um, I totally get this question. I have a, a very young one as well. Um, that's just my baby girl. And, um, you know, I've, I've thought, you know, how, what age is this child accountable? And um, I always think of this verse um, talking about how, you know, just because, you know, your kid isn't of age yet, um, the child is covered by the parent. Um, and there's this verse in first Corinthians seven fourteen. I don't, I don't think I heard you say it. So just putting it out there because it's something that I've kind of held on to, <laughs> um, in, in my case, it says for the un just, in, it says, you know, an unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. If the wife is believing and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. If the, you know, if the wife was unbelieving, it says else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. So, um, if you're, if the parent of this child is, you know, a believer is a, is a Christian, they are covered by their parents, um, their parents' belief. And so they, um, you know, if, you know, if say, um, to have the protection of God over your home, you know, it would be, it would be still standing, um, because the believing parent would cover that family. And so if there's one believer in your family, that, that family is in a sense covered, um, until they're able to make their own decision for, for Christ or not. And so I, I wouldn't fear or worry too much. So, because if you're a believer, um, then your children are covered under you and, and under your faith until they come of age to their own time of where they can make their own decision. So, yeah. And God is just, he's not out to hurt our kids. He wants to save them. He loves them. Jesus says, suffer the children to come unto me and forbid them not for of such as the kingdom of heaven. God loves children and he definitely wants every child um, in his kingdom for sure. And, and and I know what you just said there is a common interpretation, understanding of the, of the verse. So I have to say, I, I think my, my understanding of it would be that the parent, by being a, a great representative of God, you know, they will have a sanctifying effect. You know, God living through them sure. will have a sanctifying effect mm -hmm. and will be helping the child to know God and understand God and desire a relationship with God and be like that child of Jeroboam who... Um, to have some sort of relationship going there mm -hmm. even despite having the most wicked of parents yeah yeah all, all right. right i see uh, some comments yeah we have a couple comment questions here from oh, robert, look, lady. robert newell it's it's a continue yeah it's a two-parter so um yeah. let's go ahead and bring that up so robert is asking hello i hear the the saying that husbands prefer respect over love i also remember a scripture for that God told the wife to respect the husband and the husband to love the wife. Someone tried to use that scripture. It says the husband need respect more than love or over love is what he says in the next comment. Um, what are your thoughts? Was God saying it in a way that man emphasizes respect but still needs love because man is wired that way? Um, the verse you're talking about is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33. 
Um, and I love this this verse and this whole chapter really, but um, the verse says, nevertheless, ne let every one of you join particular, uh, you in particular, so love his wife. So the husbands love his wife, even as himself and the wife see that she reverence or respect her husband. And so, um, and I've definitely seen this. There's actually a, a series called love and respect that my husband and I watched before we got married and it was so wonderful. I, I would absolutely recommend it. Um, it was just such a great series. And this, um, this gentleman that, that spoke on it, I mean, he really, went in depth of the need of men for respect and the need of women to have love. And he doesn't say, oh, women don't need respect. He's not saying that at all. And not he's neither is he saying, oh, men don't need love at all. That's not true either. He's just saying um, in the, you know, in general, in the core of their being, um, men have a deep need for respect and women have a deep need for love. And so and he basically talks about how, you know, it, it's a different language almost as far as, you know, having somebody feel loved or respected because of those needs. And so like the way you speak to a man, um, you know, it, it needs to be in a respectful tone, whereas in a woman, it's more helpful in general that, you know, speak in a loving tone, not that again, you, you don't respect women or that we don't love men. That's, that's not what he's saying at all. And I, I don't think that's what the verse is saying either, but it's rather the, I think God, the way God did wire men in general is there is a, definitely a, de a deep need for respect. And that's why you see, um, you know, men, you know, in military ranks, you, you it's, it's a different, um, it's a different way of, of, of being, whereas, you know, women's brains are, are wired a little bit more differently in that. Yeah. Like, um, their deep need is, is to feel love, but, um, I, I think it's, you know, definitely a balance of, of those two but where one just kind of leans more one way than the other, if that makes sense. Jay or Wendy, any thoughts on that one? Yeah, I think that's our thinking of it too. But you're the man, so you get to comment the most here. <laughs> yeah, and and I think it's just interesting how God found a way to really help us all to be more better rounded people. You know, so mm -hmm. so like for especially for men, you know, we're going to be more rough and rigid than. And, and, and all that. But then a relationship with a wife is really going to force us to grow that love and empathy and care and compassion and those elements to us. So it's um, there's that angle to it, which is to me fascinating. But it's also interesting to me where like if you go earlier in, in this uh, this chapter in Ephesians, um, you know, Ephesians 522 begins, you know, wives submit to your husbands as to Lord. But then next verse, Ephesians 5.23, um, sorry, then it goes on to, okay, Ephesians 5.25 says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. And, you know, a lot of people like to dwell on verse 23 to 24 about, oh, women, you got this duty, you got to submit to your husband and on and on. But as we always emphasize here, the man has the higher duty to love to to and not just love but love kind of in the same way that christ loves the church and we know that's probably the greatest love you can ever have because christ yeah because he goes even further talk about how christ loved the church even to the point of giving himself his life for the church so men would you know would you put your life at risk and forsake your life if it meant saving the life of your spouse mm -hmm. i mean that's the level of care and love and compassion mm -hmm. that men are called to do and so it's, um, 
And that doesn't mean yeah. that doesn't mean just, you know, running into a burning house to grab your spouse and get them, you know, get them out of safety. But it's like how you yeah, actually show true. up. Yeah, it, it, that may the be date. an element of it at, yeah. at some point. But but it's also the showing up day to day in that relationship being a, mm -hmm. you know, Christ was a living sacrifice for us. Right. Like, yeah, he, so it's we we die daily to live as Christ lived and to be to show up in a loving way towards others. And so it's a internal dying to self to love somebody else. And mm, interesting. That is <laughs> that's deep. That I mean, that's what makes the the difference in it's easy as a woman to respect a man who mm -hmm. puts her before him himself in you know in that kind of way uh, obviously i think there's limits as well like we all have to take care i don't want to say that a man should neglect his own needs like his own true like self-care to sacrifice for you know to the spouse but like yeah it's supposed to be mutually beneficial it should be a mutually yeah. uh, beneficial relationship and, but when you both when both people are putting the other one first and thinking about the other one Marriage is a beautiful, wonderful thing because your person is there for you when you need that support and when you need that, you know, for women, when you need that love and for men, when they need that respect. And it's so much easier for a wife to respect a husband who actually loves her and treats her with love. So, yeah. And I go back to like, what's harder to love or respect? Love is harder. And so men are called to do the harder thing because they're the head of the household. And as we recited that verse earlier, the more to whom more is given more is required and so while men want to have the authority they tend not to think of that responsibility that comes with it and that responsibility mm -hmm. is to love so if you got more authority well you got to love and what you mm -hmm. do and how you use your authority should all be for the benefit of your wife just like how the father might be the head and jesus submits to the father but all that the father does is to glorify and lift up and exalt the son so yeah. I mean, that's kind of the nature of the relationship between husband and wife. And and when the husband operates this way, the wife's heart is drawn in. I just want to like, I just want to connect and love my husband when he says these things because and, and operates this way because my heart is safe mm -hmm. in that relationship. Yeah, so it's a it it is a wonderful um dynamic that God mm -hmm. has created. Yeah. And um, I think it's funny, Jay, you said it's harder to love. And um, but I think for women, it's like, but it's so easy because it comes so naturally to us. <laughs> it's like, but I mean, but to to learn to respect somebody. Yeah, it is natural. Like, because my husband's amazing. I have an immense respect for my husband. Like he doesn't even understand how much I, I do respect him because he's just a wonderful human being. And yeah, I know without, I have zero doubt in the shadow of a doubt that, you know, he'd lay down his life for me and, and our family. He's just that way. But um, at the same time, like, I know that sometimes I have to really keep myself in check and like thinking, am I just showing what I would like? Rather, what does he need? And I think it comes in that, again, self-sacrifice, not, you know, what mm -hmm. you think, what you want to give, but rather what God is uh, or what the other person wants. 
um, you know, similar to, you know, our worship of God. I think it's always, we were, we're learning um, always something about God and, and our relationship with him through every relationship here on earth. And I, I see it, especially in the marriage relationship, because, you know, like you see in Genesis, God said, I want a sacrifice of a, of a lamb. And, you know, Cain said, I want to worship you the way I want to worship you. Whereas Abel said, I will worship you the way you want to be worshiped, Lord. And so, you know, there's a conflict there because we, and I think, again, we see that in the marriage relationship is, you know, we don't give them what we think they want to have or what we would want to have. We want to give what they need or what they're asking for. And so I think, again, you know, there's so many deep, beautiful things um, from from the marriage relationship that God is teaching us so many truths about. So anyways, throw that in there. Yep. But, Thank you, know, you Robert, for the question. Yes, always. All right, let's get our next question up. So Brian is asking, where did the sayings Satan refused to worship Adam come from? So my friend, Brian, that's funny you ask Bible, ask this question because it's not found in the Bible. Um, it's actually found in the Quran. Um, if you look actually in BibleAsk.org, our website, and you put, where does it say that Satan refused to bow down to, to Adam? This is uh, where the, you know, the depth of this answer is. But yeah, basically it's in the Quran, um, in the Surah Al-Baqarah. Ayat 34, so 234 of the Quran. So that's that's where you'd find that. It's not in the Bible. Um, the, God never called um, Satan to bow down and worship um, Adam in any way, shape, or form. Uh, God is the only one who's worthy of worship. And actually, if you look, um, there's a, a time where um, in the book of Revelation uh, where John the Revelator says, you know, um, he fell down at an angel's feet to worship him. And the angel said, do it not for I'm of your fellow servants. So he's the angel saying you and I, you, um, you know, John, a human and I, an angel are, um, are basically the same. I'm your fellow servant. He said, worship God. Um, and so he, the angel says, don't worship me. And, um, and, and sorry, this is Revelation 22, verse 8. And says, then he says in, in verse 9, the angel says unto him, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them who keep the sayings of this book, worship God. So even the angels tell, you know, human beings only worship God. You don't worship people. You don't worship angels. You only worship God. That is the only person that um, is ever called to be worshipped. Never has, uh, in the Bible, do we see Satan being called to bow down to, to Adam. That's, that's unbiblical. So just so you know that that's where that comes from. Um, it's a little bit of an, a different question because it's, it's kind of outside of the Bible. So uh, Jay or Wendy, any other thoughts on that one? Yeah. And a great answer. And then just a quick additional verse. It's interesting that Psalm 8, 5, it actually suggests God made man even lower than the angels. Not by mm -hmm. much, but lower. Uh, yeah. Psalm 85, it says, For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Um, and we see Paul in Hebrews 2.9, especially applying this verse to Jesus, who was made, um, so Hebrews 2.9 says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Um, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So how is God made, or Jesus made a little lower than the angels? By being turned into a man, 
but then it's Christ, especially who's the one that's being crowned with glory and honor and receiving the praise. And we know that every knee shall bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. And that's referring to God in every, yeah, all the universe, all creation is to bow down to God as, as Tina said. Yeah. And I mean, and it also, um, you know, this idea of, of Satan being told to bow to Adam is in conflict with the second commandment, you know, of, of the Bible. And God says, you know, my commandment stands forever, which is, you know, thou shalt not have any graven images. We're not supposed to bow down to anything other than God. And, you know, the first commandment is thou shalt have no other gods before me. We're not supposed to um, have any other gods, any, anything, anybody are we to worship um, at all in any way or bow down to. Um, so yeah, just saying that this is definitely not a biblical concept um, because it's out of harmony with God's word. It's out of harmony with his law and it's not found anywhere in the scriptures. So, Yeah. And if we look at what was, what was the dominion given to Adam in Genesis and, you know, it was, you know, Adam was made out of the earth and then he was given dominion over the earth and, yeah, there's no no indication whatsoever in the beginning that God even gave Adam any dominion over angels. So it's always been this gulf mm -hmm. between man and angels. So yeah, interesting. Yeah. A lot of ways we can, I guess, really pull this apart and just keep reaffirming um, the hierarchy of God, then angels, and then maybe things in between, who knows, and, and then man. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, just like you're saying, um, that's brought to my mind, like Jacob's ladder, the J Jacob's dream, you know, like oh, Jacob yeah. was you know, on the ground sleeping and he has a dream where there's angels up and down a ladder on the top of the ladder is Jesus. So, you know, absolutely. <laughs> we're, we're on the bottom. <laughs> we're, <laughs> no angels ever going to worship us. So that, that's not what they're called to do. So anyways. All right. All right uh, I think we have time on... for a few more questions. Yeah. Let's yeah. get our next question up. So Penny is asking, was Mary that was married to Joseph also married Zebedee later in Matthew 27? Uh, interesting question, Penny. So I looked it up and I believe you're referring to Matthew 27, starting at verse 55. So Matthew 27, verse, sorry, 55. It says, and many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar. So this is talking about Jesus up there on the cross. So many women were there. And among them were Mary of Mag Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus and Joses, and, or Joseph, and then the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now I can see how one way to read it is Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Um, but really, I think if you look at it, it's saying there was Mary the Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and then also the mother of Zebedee's sons. And these are just a couple of the standout people that are being named there. Not all the women, but these three, um, because we see them referred to throughout the, the Gospels. In fact, we see Zebedee's mother being uh, specifically mentioned in Matthew 20. Verses 20 to 21. We're never given her name, but we're always told she's Zebedee, um, the mother of Zebedee's sons. So um, Matthew 20, verse 20, sorry, Matthew 20, chapter 20, verse 20 says, Then the mother of, of Zebedee's sons came to him, Jesus, with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Grant 
that these two sons of mine shall sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. So it's, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, you know, Jesus didn't totally push her off. Um, you know, he said, it's not for me to tell you, you know, what will, or not for me to pick who will be on my right and my left. But, um, you know, he indicated there would be something special for her sons. And it's fascinating when we come to John 19, verse 26, Jesus, again, is on the cross. But this time he's speaking to a different Mary. Now he's speaking to his mom, who was the, the uh, wife of Joseph. And Jesus says to his mom, uh, so Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, referring to John, John the beloved, uh, standing by him. And he, Jesus, said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, uh, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. So before this, John didn't consider Mary his mother, wasn't taking care of him. Of him. But it's after this, when Jesus is on the cross, concerned about the welfare of his mom, saying, John, you're my special disciple and I need you. Will you please take care of my mom? And John did uh, thereafter. So very fascinating. And, and to me, this is just further proof that before this, there really wasn't some like stepmom relationship between uh, John the Beloved and Mary, mother of Jesus. But but there was still eventually actually ended up being something like that where John takes in Mary to take care of her. So great question. And Tina, any other thoughts you'd like to add to this? No, I think that's good. I know it, it gets a little, a little bit confusing in the Bible. There's a lot of people with the same name and yeah. a lot of that sort of thing going on. So I, I totally get it. <laughs> so it's a good question, but um, yep. thank you, Jay, for clarifying. All right, let's get our next question up. So Catherine is asking, what's the significance of God's right hand? Catherine, that is a beautiful question. Um, God's right hand is mentioned many, many times in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. And when it's mentioned in the New Testament, it's mainly focusing on kind of a, um, a prophecy that was given about Jesus in the book of Psalms, chapter 110, verse 2. And so um, I'll go ahead and go there. Psalms 110, we'll read verses 1 and 2 just for a little bit of context. And it says, The Lord said unto my Lord, so the Lord God said to my Lord, so David is speaking here. So the Lord, the father said unto my Lord, Jesus, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies my footstool. Um, and then it says, the Lord shall send um, his rod out of the strength of Zion, rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. So at that point, um, Jesus would become, you know, have a special exalted position. And so this was a messianic prophecy. This is a prophecy pointing forward to Jesus Christ. And so you see this when you look in the New Testament, um, quoted many, many times throughout the New Testament. Jesus speaks about it um, in the books of, uh, I believe in the book of Mark. He says, then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received. Oh, excuse me. This is talking about Jesus when he was received into heaven, that he is sat on the right hand of God in Mark 16, 19. So here we see that Jesus fulfills this prophecy. And then, um, you know, Jesus, you know, when he was on earth, he spoke about this prophecy, um, saying in, in Luke chapter 22, verse 69, 
Um, he says, hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. So, and so Jesus knew this prophecy. He was speaking, he knew it was speaking of himself. And then in the New Testament church, we see that, you know, Paul, as well as many others, you know, talk about Jesus being set on the right hand of God. We see it in the book of Acts, we see it in the book of Romans, and especially in the book of Hebrews, such as in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. Um, it says, but this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifices for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. So again, this is talking about Jesus being on the right hand of God. So what does that right hand signify? Um, based on what I understand, what I understand, especially in Jewish culture, um, the right hand is a symbol of strength, of power, and of majesty. And so for Jesus to be set on the right hand of God, that is a, a position of honor because only Jesus has that authority and that um, honor to sit in that position of you know, sitting down at the right hand of God. Whereas when you look in the Bible, um, the left side isn't really a position of honor at all. Um, you see that in the Old Testament, in the book of Ecclesiastes, um, chapter 10, verse two, it seems to be a more of definitely something inferior. So go with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Excuse me, I'm having technical issues here. Um, Ecclesiastes, chapter 10 and verse two, and it reads, a wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart at his left. And so here we see that the left side, you know, the right hand is more, you know, wisdom, something, you know, good, something beautiful, something worthy, you know, of honor, but it says, but a fool's heart at his left. And so, um, you know, it's something more deceitful. It's something, you know, foolish, weak, you know, inferior, unstable, something you don't want to be associated with. So definitely, you know, the right hand is something, you know, of, of honor, of respect, of power, of majesty. And we definitely see God's hand being a, of um, a right hand of power and of strength. And I think the best illustration of this, and I'll kind of close with this thought, because I think this is just a cool thought, you know, talking about God's right hand. So God tells us that he will give us his right hand to be our strength, and you see that in the book of Isaiah, chapter 41, in a very um, famous verse. I love this verse. It is honestly one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. And it's Isaiah, chapter 41, verse 10. It says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Yes, I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. Yes, I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. So God is speaking to his people that he will be with us. He'll give us his right hand and he'll, you know, um, you know, he'll uphold us with his right hand. But something even cooler about this verse is if you go two verses up to verse 12. So go to Isaiah 41 verse 12 and it says, um, thou shalt seek him, excuse me, Isaiah chapter, oh, 13, excuse me, 13. Um, I got a little bit uh, messed up or mixed up there. So Isaiah 41 verse 13, my apologies. It says, for I, the Lord, thy God will hold thy right hand saying unto thee, fear not, I will help thee. So if God is saying he's going to hold your right hand. So your right hand is, you know, your dominant hand, your hand that's you know, your stronger hand. Um, he's saying, I'm going to hold your right hand. So in order for God to hold your right hand, you then have to you know, submit it into his 
you know, probably his left hand. So then you being connected to God, God is going to use his right hand for your strength, for your good. And so it's almost instead of you fighting the battle, you know, with your own strength, with your own right hand, it's now you just holding on to God and God using his right hand to fight for you. And so like it says in the Old Testament, you know, the Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. All you have to do is use your hand to hold, put your hand in God's and hold on because God's right hand, his righteous right hand, his hand of strength, power, awesome majesty will fight for you. And so I just hope and pray that, um, you know, you continue in God's word and that, you know, you hold on to God's hand so that he will use his right hand to, um, to fight for you, to give you strength and to, um, to lead you in the right path. So yeah. And Jane, Wendy, any other thoughts on that one? No, that's a great, great answer. I think that's the topic you could write a book on. Oh yeah, <laughs> definitely. No, God's yeah. And there's so many things like God's finger, God's arm. There's, I mean, mm -hmm. all these things. I mean, there's, there are different things. There are so many aspects to God and his amazingness um, that we could just keep talking about. If you just look at all these things, you know, this finger of God, how, you know, God does amazing things with that. God's arm, you know, like I said, God is infinite and his, yeah, he's just awesome. <laughs> God, is good. God is good. Absolutely. All right. Let's, I think we got time for one more question. Let's get the last one up. It's coming. There it is. All right. So Robert is asking, in Revelation 19, verses 8 and 14 are the same. Clean white linen. Saints go to war following Jesus, not angels. Uh, so, Robert, thanks for asking this question. And um, I, I know these verses in Revelation 19 trip up a lot of people. And if we take a really contextual examination of Revelation as a whole and also the Bible as a whole, I think it gets really clear on what we're talking about in these verses. So let's start first with Revelation 19, verses 7 to 8. Revelation 19, 7 to 8. It says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made her, herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So uh, last, in fact, last week we, so there's a video ready that's out that we talked about how the woman, the woman in Revelation 12 is standing for the church, God's people. And God has always used the woman to refer to his people. Sometimes it's his people when they're corrupt, like the, the harlot. Or it's going to be God's people who are righteous, and that's going to be the the woman who's clothed in white and fine linen. And as we're talking about, even today, Jesus is wanting to love this woman, give his life for the woman, treats her like how a man should treat his wife. So yes, Revelation nineteen seven to eight is talking about people. For sure. Now, what's interesting is in verse eight, it says the righteous acts of the saints. And another way you could translate it is the righteous acts of, of the holy ones. And we see this used throughout the Bible interchangeably at times between humans and angels. 
And sometimes it, it almost seems like it could be both of them. So it's interesting to me, the use there of, of saints. And then uh, what what's important to point out here is, Robert, I think you're making an assumption that the righteous acts of the saints can only apply to humans. So in other words, only humans and not angels are capable of righteous acts. So is that does that make sense? Are we going to actually take the position that angels cannot do righteous acts? Um, now, first and interestingly, uh, uh, right talk about the, the holy ones, referring to both humans and angels. Now, if we go to Revelation 19, verses 3 to 15, Let's let's see what's going on here and how Robert rightfully connects the dots between righteousness. So it says, starting at verse 13, He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, notice that it says the armies in heaven, not on earth, are clothed in fine linen, white and clean, Followed him on white horses. And again, make a note there of on horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. With it, he could strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod, iron rod. He himself treads the wine press of the fierceness and wrath of the almighty God. So uh, we see these armies in heaven and the clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And Robert's connected the dots that we were told that the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Now, does that require us to believe now that these have to be humans? It can't be angels doing righteous things, that these are righteous angels. Now, we don't have to look too far to see that angels specifically can be in white linen. Revelation 5, 6, it says, And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen. It's right there. It could not be more clear. Angels are in bright linen. If you go to John 20, verse 12, uh, we're told that you know a woman saw two angels in white. And it's important to keep in mind, too, that sometimes when the Bible refers to holy angels, implied in that is the fact that there might be unholy angels. So like Matthew 25, 31, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy ones with him, then he will sit on the throne of the glory. So he has his holy angels. And there are unholy angels. So why are these holy angels? They are set apart. They're different than the other angels because I would say because they obey God. And when you obey God, those will be righteous acts. And notice here, it is the angels. Jesus said in, in Matthew 25, he's coming with his angels. He's not coming with humans because there aren't humans yet in heaven other than you can say like Enoch, Elijah, and Moses. Besides them, all he has are angels to bring with him to gather his people. And that's, in fact, what we're told What who will help Jesus gather his people. It's with the angels. Matthew 13, 49 to 50. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. 
there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And when we talked about the, the army in heaven, that's the language that was used in Revelation. Well, if we go to Joshua 5.13, we have the story of Joshua. He looks up and he sees a man opposite him with a sword drawn. And almost always when you see a sword drawn, that's often image imagery of Jesus. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or our adversaries? So he said, no, <laughs> I'm not with you. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. So Jesus made a distinction here between the army of Israel, the children of Israel, and the army in, in heaven. That's the side he's on. If we go to Matthew 26, verse 53, Jesus talks about how he could ask the Father, and the Father would send more than 12 legions of angels. Again, this is army language referring to the angels. If we go to Joel, look at the book of Joel, chapter 2. The whole verse, the whole chapter pretty much, or at least through verse 11, is talking about this huge army following the Lord with like destruction just behind it. And, and the talk about like the speed, the might, just the, the abilities of this army. It's not an earthly army. This is the armies of, of, of angels that are gathering God's people and destroying the wicked behind them at the second coming. And, and it's this language, the Joel 2 language, I believe, that we're seeing in the second half of Revelation 19. So it will really help you connect the dots. And then again, as I mentioned, there's unholy angels. We see this Revelation 2, 4, sorry, Revelation 12, verse 4. It talks about how the dragon brought down a third of the stars. Stars often a symbol of angels. And then later in verses 7 to 8 of this Revelation 12, we hear how Michael and his angels fought the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven anymore. Those unholy angels are cast down with, with Satan, uh, who is the dragon. Re Revelation tells us the dragon is Satan. Second Peter 2 Peter 2.4 says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down and delivered in, into darkness, uh, and saying the reserve for judgment, is that not a clue then? that there's also angels who did not sin. And if they did not sin, can we not say that they were righteous? So I got many more verses. You can look where we're talking about like the fall of Satan, Lucifer, the morning star. That's Isaiah 14, verse 12. Ezekiel 28, verses 12 to 15, talking about also this creature that was in Eden who fell and eventually sin was found with him. Uh, verse 15, you were perfect in your ways till the day you were created, from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. So here's a fallen angel, an unholy angel. So Revelation four, uh, 19 starts off talking about the righteous acts of the saints and the woman. That's definitely God's people. But then when we're talking about the invading army, that's Christ at the second coming, coming with his angels to punish the wicked, to destroy them, and then gather God's people and take them with him. And this sort of marks the beginning of the millennium where then you'll have God's people reigning with him for a thousand years in heaven while the earth is destroyed and desolate 
and all the wicked are dead, but Satan and his angels are trapped. They're stuck on earth. Remember, they got cast, cast down, and now they're stuck on a barren earth. Nobody to, to tempt, nothing to do for a thousand years until Christ will raise them at the end of the millennium. And this is what we read in chapter 20. So all this about the millennium now is chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. So hope that helps you understand the sequence of how all this works. And the events of Revelation are told again and again and again when you're talking about the seals, the trumpets, uh, the, all these different things. That in multiple times, the Bible is telling us the same thing, but from different perspectives. And so once you understand the sequence of the events, you're reading through Revelation like, oh, it's telling me about this sequence again. And it's so consistent and you can't unsee it once you finally see it. So thanks, Robert, for asking. Tina, anything you would like to add? Yeah, just really quick. Um, you know, when you look at Revelation chapter 19, I, I totally see what you're saying. Um, our friend Robert, you know, in chapter eight, it's very clear that this is, you know, God's people arrayed in, you know, clean white linen in verse um, 14. It's definitely the angels in heaven. I think there's kind of a verse um, that Paul says that kind of rectifies like that. Yeah, definitely God's people, you know, are <laughs> and, and the angels, you know, at one time they're uh, eventually they're going to be all they're they're the same team they're all on team jesus and so if you look at ephesians chapter 1 verse 10 it says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he jesus might gather together in one all things in christ both which are in heaven the angels and which are on earth even in him so those on earth you know his people and so definitely um you know the angels you know they have the righteousness the clean white linen because they're of the armies you know, that follow Christ. And then God's people also wear that same um, material, just like, you know, in, in an army, you know, you take on the the uniform of the team or the side that you're on. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's just, that's what the Bible's pointing to in this chapter because it's symbolic. And so it's, you know, some symbolizing that God's people are taking on that same righteousness as the, those who follow Jesus in heaven. And, you know, just like Paul saying, and, and the dispensation of time when, when the prophecy gets fulfilled, when it's time, all of God's people, you know, in heaven and in earth um, will be joined together into the, that great kingdom. So. Yeah. Thank you, Jay. I know your, your answer is much more <laughs> thorough. But No, that, but that's a great that point. Was... I love even more confirmation there. Yeah. No, but that's a really good, that's point. A good point. Thank you. God is good. We All have right. one more question. Or a comment? Or co well, comment. No, that's a question. Yeah, there's a question from Robert in the chat. So Robert is saying, my girlfriend and I were discussing love. It was a great conversation. She mentioned that someone can love someone but doesn't know how to love them correctly. I believe there's truth to it. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, sorry, I don't mean to jump. <laughs> jump no, no, again. go. <laughs> um, I think going back to kind of um, Jay, you you were talking about Ephesians chapter five earlier, you know, and I know um, Robert, you'd mentioned, you know, the verse which was Ephesians five thirty three, but you know, in verse twenty five, I know Jay, you're talking about, you know, husbands love your wives, and so it doesn't just love your wives because it's like, what does that mean? But God gives us more clarity, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So, mm -hmm. yeah, definitely we can love in a way that's, you know, incorrect. I think if your girlfriend's talking about this, this sounds like a good girl. So <laughs> I, I like this. This is good. Um, so you, definitely there's some truth to that. You might not know how to love the right way because mm -hmm. some, you know, some men will hit their wives and they'll say, oh, I hit you because I love you. 
No, they're not. <laughs> they don't know how to love the right way. That's not how Christ loved the church. Um, mm -hmm. So God is saying you need to love at like the love of God, which is an mm -hmm. unselfish love and a way that is loving and is kind, you know, that reflects the fruit of his spirit, which has joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, you know, self-control, these types of attributes, which are an attribute of God, you know, and when God says he declares his name, his glory, his character, it's the Lord God merciful. Um, mm -hmm. So God is a kind God. He is a merciful, loving God, not like, you know, other people say, oh, I, you know, I love you, but they don't like, she's correct in saying, people might not know how to love the right way. Some people are overly jealous. Some people, you know, are abusive. Some people have, you know, love, but they don't do it correctly as, and their correct way is to love as God loves, which is, you know, a balanced love that is loving mm -hmm. and selfless, but also has appropriate and healthy boundaries because God mm -hmm. definitely sets up appropriate boundaries when he gave us, you know, his commandments mm -hmm. and other things. So I think that's more, um, you know, I think that's definitely a lot of truth to that. Yep. And I just wanted to add to that too. If you look at the difference of how Jesus healed people and saw them at a very deep, loving level versus the way, you know, the average disciple would try, may show up initially until they learned. I mean, Jesus is teaching his disciples his ways of seeing and loving people. If so, if it was easy for us to do this, we would all be doing it perfectly from birth, but it's not. And the whole point of Jesus coming here and doing everything he did is to show us how to love people correctly. That's that's my interpretation of it. Yeah. And and maybe maybe a part of this loving them correctly is also um, there's a certain subjective level it, to it too, where every individual might want to be loved in a different way or have different mm -hmm. expectations, different needs. And so there's not yeah. necessarily one size fits all way mm -hmm. to love someone. Like don't treat everybody all exactly the same. It's really about meeting people where they're at. And Jesus did that. He didn't treat every person exactly right. the same. He knew exactly where to go, what to say to help mm -hmm. them, to really love them where they're at. And so with that comes... This concept that, yeah, we're not all going to be loving correctly. <laughs> Most of the time we're not. And to love is really about growth, personal growth, being committed to to learning, getting better, growing more experience, more, um, more wisdom, more discernment. Mm -hmm. And it also takes getting to know that other person and communicating with them, speaking, listening, all these things are critical to love, being present. Um, and so, yeah, love, love very much becomes a part. That's why we say love is a, a, um, a state of being, and it's um, a way of life. It's not a one-time thing. It is this continual process that we engage in, that we show to others and um, minimize ourselves and lift up others in our lives. Mm -hmm. um and so yeah i can so can you love without loving correctly i mean i think you almost say like can you parent without parenting correctly and so like yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> um but as as tina when you're saying there is a higher standard that we're we mm -hmm. should be calling to and aiming to striving to always get better with our love and i'll just give a simple example of that as well like kind of in daily life with you know as as husband and wife um if jay is like 
I'm really craving, like, I really, I really need some fruit right now. Like that's what my body needs is fruit. And I bring him a plate of greens, like green vegetables. That's not really loving him, right? Like it's food and he need and he's hungry and he needs food. But if what his body needs right now is fruit and I give him vegetables, that's probably not going to be like, he's probably not going to feel the most loved by that because I didn't do, I didn't help him in the way he needed help at that moment. So that's why it's, you know, love is, it's an action. It's, it is, it's how we show up for each other and for the needs that the other person has at that very moment. It might be that later in the day he needs vegetables, but it might be, but, but that may not be what he needs right now. And so doing what's loving for him is meeting the need that he has right now. Amen. I think that's a really good point. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for everybody who joined us tonight. We want to thank you all. And we pray that you are blessed. If you did enjoy our program, be sure to like and share our content. It does help us out in getting God's word and his message out to um, others. So we would do appreciate everybody out there who does like and share our content. And if you, again, if you have a question you'd like to formally submit and to be featured on our weekly show, be sure to go to our website, bibleask.org forward slash live. And that's where you can submit your question that we feature uh, when we bring up the questions. And we just want to also remind everybody that we are live every Friday at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So we hope to see you again next week at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time here at Bible Ask Live. So before we go, though, we're going to have a quick word of prayer. And uh, J.R. Wendy, you want to pray for us? Sure. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we could gather, that we could talk about amazing things like love and relationships and truth and your word and that time when you're going to come and gather us all together so that we can just dwell with you forever. We can't wait for that time. And until then, please help our actions, our words, our deeds, all that we do during this time to be making the most of it to help others get to know you so that they may be ready when you come. And this we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. And again, we hope to see everybody again next week. Pick 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. God bless everybody and good night. Good night. Thank you.